the library guy. He's on billboards all over town. So thank you. <laughs> hey, today we are going to finish up a series on the church and culture. Uh, largely initiated by me because I've sensed this difference or division within the body of Christ, primarily between generations, over certain issues. Uh, and I want to do a quick review uh, of these things and then move on to our topic for today. We started in June with the subject of the necessity of objective truth as opposed to opinion or subjective truth. Uh, and at that time, we talked about how objective truth is based upon facts and values set by a transcendent being, which we would call God. And we've got to not allow the culture to form our worldview, but we must be equipped by knowing God's Word to address and change the culture. But in that process, we need to listen and learn from other perspectives and give grace for differences due to the culture which influences every individual. And we must seek a biblical culture whatever our minor differences. So, uh, in July, we tackled the subject, the tough subject of prejudice. And I don't say racial tensions because it's my view anyway that we are all one race, same blood. But the real problem identified in the Bible is prejudice or prejudging. It's a preconceived opinion that is not based upon reason or actual experience. It's giving an answer before I hear. And we studied at that time how in the Bible there was a great division in the early church between the Jewish believers and the Gentiles. The Jewish believers said, we're God's chosen, you're not. But it was clear in Scripture that that dividing wall has been torn down and the gospel is for everybody. So, if that wall is torn down, between God's chosen and everybody else. How can we possibly divide within the church over something as inconsequential as skin color? Actual prejudice and tragedy and atrocities have occurred, period. And we have some residual effect in our culture today. So we need to listen to concerns expressed by others. Satan is sowing confusion. We talked about how the, just the phrase Black Lives Matter has confused people. We talked also about philosophical theories like critical race theory which is based solely upon oppression and ignores dealing with real solutions. But yet this same theory is gaining footholds within evangelical circles. In August, we talked about sex, marriage and sexual sin. How the culture is drawing the young, including those within the church, into things that God calls sin, cohabitation, same-sex relationships and gender confusion. And we learned also that the biblical response is our identity is not hetero or homo or trans. It is as sinners we all need Christ. In September, we got into men and women. And some of the issues within the church, headship and submission within the family. And why some of the young are reacting to that authority by husbands because of abuse of that authority and infidelity and divorce and pornography and, a, and sexual abuse by clergy. We also talked about women teaching in church and how they have the ability, but they may not because that's not the biblical pattern. You see, Jesus is equal with his father, but yet he submits to him. You all are equal with the leadership of this church, yet you submit and wives are equal to their husbands, yet they submit. That's the biblical pattern. So today, the first thing I want to ask you is, does the church influence culture, or does the culture influence the church? 
And I suspect the answer is yes. It goes both ways. And in our discussion today, we're going to talk about the church, culture, and politics. Uh, we're going to note that the church has been influenced by politics, but our focus should be on how the church has and should influence the culture in this area of politics. Now, you might say, Kent, I thought this was the one place I could go and not have any political ads or you know, get in that rancorous talk that is so prevalent today. Well, there are many churches in which that's the case. Yeah, they want to say, uh, don't take what we teach you on Sunday and apply it in real life on Monday. Rather, they want to avoid politics at all costs. Uh, it's forbidden to talk about in cer certain churches. And usually the rationalization is, well, the gospel is the main thing. And I agree. However, that's a problem, I think. The other extreme is that some would make the church a political action committee. And that's clearly not the function of the body of Christ. However, if it's true that the Bible speaks to all issues and areas of, and details of our lives, that would seem to include current events, and which also might include something political. And if an, an issue is largely a political one, does that mean that we cannot or should not address it within the walls of the church? You see, the other side of it is that Jesus told us all to be salt and light. Salt preserves things from decay, and because of sin, our culture is decaying. Light prevents darkness and evil from engulfing the world, and it illuminates the truth of God's Word and the good news, the gospel, to a world of desperate lost souls. And therefore, even though many pastors and even denominations may disagree, I have a hard time concluding that we do not address all issues of our day, even those deemed political. And some Christians call, feel called to political involvement or activism, others less so. We need to recognize that's part of our diversity and express grace and not judge one another in those areas. But we also need to avoid going over the edge on either side to the point that the former get so wrapped up with politics they lose sight of the main thing, the gospel, or the latter just close their eyes to anything that could be considered political and ignore Christ's command to be salt and light. And therefore, today we're not going to get into any one issue in particular uh, very much, but instead we're going to look at how we as biblical Christians should maintain that balance and it so just so it happens, looking forward to our election coming up in a month. As I mentioned at the beginning of this series, I'm not going to pull punches. I will likely address the good, the bad, and the ugly. So you may need to tuck your toes under your chair. Let's pray. Lord God, we give all praise to you. Thank you, Father, for assembling us together today. And Lord, may your word, the light of your word, be shed on every single thing that we contend with. Even this difficult subject of politics and the role of the state and how we interact and how we respond to it. We just pray that you would bless our time and that I would be able to speak the truth in love and that hearers would be able to understand. Lord God, we give you all the praise and glory for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. I first want to address how the church and Christianity in general has influenced politics and government and our culture and how Christianity has contributed to the foundation of political liberty that we enjoy in our country almost uniquely. As I encourage all to listen to other perspectives, I want to tell you, I'm not a perfect communicator, and if I say something that hits you the wrong way, or that you disagree with, or if, if certainly if it's, you think it's unbiblical, please come and talk to me. I want to hear what you have to say. Please also understand that this first part here is about broad foundational concepts that, frankly, we take for granted. But few nations in the world, other than the United States, actually embrace these. So we are truly blessed, as imperfect as we are here. 
the most basic overarching concept here is, is that Christianity gives us some keen insights into politics and government, but no one political system is ordained or blessed by God, although some, make, some systems make it much easier to carry out God's plan uh, than others. Yet the Bible instructs believers to conduct themselves biblically subject to a higher law in whatever political state they find themselves. At a minimum, Christianity provides an orientation, a foundation of how to think about politics and government, particularly the limits of what politics may accomplish. So the first thing, I think it's make, the first point on your, your study sheet there, is that the state is not divine. It is not God. In fact, the whole idea of a limited state is intrinsically connected to biblical teaching. If you remember, Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar, render to God's what is God's. Those revolutionary words have profound implication on how we understand the state. Not everything belongs to Caesar. Uh, Lord Acton was a Catholic historian and statesman in England during the 1800s who famously wrote, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He also wrote that in antiquity, in old times, the government was both church and state in one. Quote, morality was undistinguished from religion and politics from morals. And in religion, morality, and politics, there was only one legislator and one authority. What he was saying was there was no moral appeal beyond the state because Caesar and Pharaoh deemed themselves to be God. The Bible stands in opposition to that. The state and its leaders are not the highest authority. They deserve respect, but they do not stand above God's law. Christians understand that politicians and the state's agents are sinners just like the rest of us. Now, hear me out here. This is why we have the principle called the separation of church and state. No, those words are not in the Constitution. And yes, that concept is inappropriately applied today in many situations and particularly in some courts. But that concept has real meaning and is enshrined in the First Amendment of our Constitution where Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion or the free exercise of it. Now, Acton's words do not mean that state and politics are evil or even a necessary evil. James Madison said this, quote, If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable a government to control the governed, and the next place oblige that government to control itself. There's the rub. There's the rub. So for Christians, government plays an important but limited role. Christians view the state as important for coordination, administration of justice, security, and the common defense. However, there have been times when Christians have politicized religion and abused political power in the name of religion, even to compel belief. This is contrary to the biblical concept of each person coming to faith in Christ by the free will of one's heart. Now, despite these failures of the church, the distinction between the claims of God and Caesar remain. The next one is that the state is not the final judge of truth and justice. The state is bound by the same moral laws as individuals. Christianity rejects the authority of the dictator and even a majority of its citizens to determine truth and justice. Some things are just wrong. Augustine said, right is right even when no one is doing it. Wrong is wrong even when everyone is doing it. Uh, Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl put it more concisely. He said, no one has the right to do what is wrong. That's true for people, and it's true for the state. And because of this, human law must always be subordinate to God's law. 
All the vast thinkers of the Christian tradition, Augustine, Aquinas, and, and others, have held that an unjust law is no law at all. Also central to the Judeo-Christian ethic that governs man's laws is that justice must be impartial, uh, found in the Old and New Covenant. Leviticus 9.15 states, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Now, this is foundational, the idea of the rule of law as opposed to the rule of men or the king. Law must, be, must not be arbitrary. It must offer its citizens what we call due process. And due process says that we do not prejudge before there's an opportunity for all to bring out evidence to establish fact. This is not what is happening in many of our incidents, incidents that we see in the media today and in the minds of many people and in the actions of many people. We should not conclude when we see something on the media that either party is guilty or innocent based upon skin color or the color of, color of their uniform. When others or we come to conclusions or react based upon initial news accounts, we are exhibiting prejudice because there has been no due process to establish the facts. It was wrong when President Obama did it. It's wrong when President Trump does it. James tells us that wisdom from above is impartial, James 3.17. Impartiality in the law stands in contrast to crony capitalist practice of giving benefits to the rich and well-connected and from, and from much of the contemporary social justice ideas that the poor should get special treatment at the expense of justice, a practice that robs its beneficiaries of their dignity. There is no justice outside of God's justice. The next one is called the common good. And Tom Lindsay's Sunday school last week got into a lot of this. And if you're not in Sunday school, you are missing something, okay? Uh, these guys are doing a great job. Uh, and this Christian thought, contribution to government, is vital. The common good consists of personal liberty that enables individuals, families, and communities to function and flourish. It's important to note that the common good does not mean the good of the state or the good of certain groups or the greatest good for the greatest number, nor simply more efficiency or more pleasure. Rather, it's rooted in the truth that all people have intrinsic value because we are all created in the image of God and each of us has an eternal destiny. The state plays a role in promoting the common good, mainly in helping to create the conditions where people can flourish. The state should directly assist only when necessary. Policies that provide stability and economic conditions in which people can find work is an example of this. Aquinas explained, quote, is contrary to the proper character of the state to impede people from acting according to their responsibilities, except in emergencies. Now, those emergencies do not include laziness. Paul said that if any able-bodied person is not willing to work, neither should he eat. Pretty good motivation. This leads to the fourth main contribution of biblical influence, the importance of marriage and family as a stabilizing institution in our diverse culture. Willie taught on this this morning. Again, you missed a good one, so be here next week for Sunday school. We are by nature social beings. We need community. We are born into families and into cultures, and we flourish in communities. Family is the heart, the foundation of our society. While the state recognizes the family and has a limited role in regulating it, Family is not simply a construct of the state. It is first biblical, but it's also a natural, biological, and sociological reality that exists prior to the state. Uh, this is one reason why the attempts to redefine marriage is a gross overreaching of state power, ultimately a totalitarian act. The state usually through the courts, acted as the arbiter of reality itself. If biology can be redefined, what limits remain? 
A biblical vision of government supports the independence of the family and allows it to f- the freedom to flourish and live out its responsibilities. This includes such things as education and private property as part of the role of the family. As Willie taught this morning, in education, parents, not schools, government, or churches, are primary educators of their children. Now, families are essential, and they are encouraged and supported by what Alexis de Tocqueville called intermediary institutions. And these are those other things, like civic and neighborhood groups, churches, charitable organizations, schools, voluntary organizations like the, the Rescue Mission, who deal with social problems, dysfunction, and sin. Finally, Christian thought assists in understanding the limits of government, that government simply cannot solve many of the problems that people ask it to address because these are problems of the heart. All people are broken, some much more so than others. Christian view is that mankind is made in God's image but is now in a fallen state. In other words, sin is a reality. While we are capable of doing great good, we are also incapable of doing profound evil. And therefore, we need a government to protect people from harm and to punish evildoers. But it is equally important that we place limits on rulers. The Christian vision of government is deeply skeptical of any attempt to solve social problems primarily through law. It recognizes that we cannot create a perfectly just social order. Politics play an important role, but it is limited in what it can possibly accomplish. Government cannot ensure man's happiness, and while it is there to curb evil and use what Paul calls the sword for wrongdoers, if necessary, government cannot change the nature of mankind, cannot change the heart of man. It is not the task of the state to change our world into a paradise, even though many ask it to do so. In short, government will never solve the fundamental problems of suffering, evil, sin, and death. The purpose of politics and government is simply to restrain evil and do good. This takes us full circle back to the first point, that government is not God. Okay, let's move on to where is the church today uh, in this cultural and political landscape. You know, this series was motivated by a perception of this division within the church and, again, between generations uh, in our response to current events and relationships. So how can the church move the culture in the right direction if it is divided within itself? If you remember, James also said that wisdom from above is open to reason. We must listen to those who maybe we disagree with on something because unless you're omniscient, you may be wrong. And particularly in this area of politics. Generally, what I've heard over the last several years, getting specific here, from younger Christians is that the evangelical church has identified itself with the Republican Party. And they view this as a sellout, compromising the gospel for the sake of partisan politics. This mixing of the evangelical community with politics has resulted in quite a bit of confusion. I'm not going to get into the weeds here, but some trace this mixing back to a group called the Moral Majority, headed by a guy named Jerry Falwell Sr., not the fallen junior, uh, in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, the sense is that Christians started to look to political power as the route to preserving the culture, delaying the decay, rather than the efficacy of the body of Christ in its witness and action. The present evidence of this is that the word evangelical has become somewhat ubiquitous, remember? It's kind of lost its meaning. It really now identifies a voting block with close alignment with the Republican Party. In other words, a, an evangelical voter is, by definition, a Republican. Now, the mixing of these spheres has resulted in many people identifying as evangelicals, swelling the ranks under that banner. And maybe these are people who 
hold to conservative views on social issues, and they believe in God. However, the polling and survey people have now come up, have, have had to come up with categories that identify certain groups, including one in which people self-identify as non-church-attending evangelicals. Now, that's an oxymoron to me. How can you be evangelical? You want to promote the good news of the gospel to others with yet forsake the assembling of yourselves together and learning God's ways and word in order to do that. Clearly, political parties are not denominations or churches nor vice versa, and we should not look upon them as such. We're not saying here that it's wrong to engage in civil discourse, to work in government, to support political candidates, or actually run for political office uh, which of necessity involves a political party or even to serve in a position within a political party. Quite the opposite. All of this activity is important for those called to such roles. Christians should be involved in all aspects of life. Governing and politics definitely has an impact on life and our culture. Rulers play a huge role in justice and the moral trajectory of our nation. The closer the worldview is of the decision makers is to God's view, the better things will be for all, including unbelievers. Christians should not ignore the difference in political parties. They do serve a purpose, and we've been diligent to put the uh, information out there about the, the party platforms on the Welcome Center. It's true that not all Republicans and Democrats and Libertarian candidates hold fast to all points on a party platform. However, at least it tells you the base from which individual candidates draw their support and the basic worldview with which those candidates have felt that they should align. And if you will take the time to educate yourself before the election, you will see a vast disparity in the worldviews of the respective parties. We should look at each individual candidate uh, I have actually voted for Democrats, okay? That's important, what they actually stand for. You should look at incumbents and look at their voting record with newcomers, their affiliations and stated positions. Christy and I were out the other night uh, putting up door hangers for our son-in-law, and I noticed something very interesting about some of the yard signs that were placed. We had people from both parties in the same yard. It's, it's pretty interesting. That tells you something about certain people. This is work. But it's important. Your research will allow you to help other people understand which candidates are going to take us closer to biblical values. And when you take that time and effort to become better informed, at least you might move the culture, perhaps even government, closer to God's best. Always helpful for those with a biblical worldview to be informed about issues so that they may inform others about these issues. We should consider current events and movements always from a biblical perspective. But in that process, let me warn you, broad generalizations about anything that happens, an incident or about people, is usually prejudice. He said in Proverbs 18, it, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. So, for example, there have been many news accounts in the last several months about uh, riots following incidents where somebody was shot or killed. And at times, those riots have resulted in property damage, harm, even death, including death of law enforcement. And we rightly see this scenario as evil, both in itself and as part of Satan's plan to divide us. It is also on the part of those rioting prejudicial because they're judging before they know the facts. However, when Christians categorically blame all the riots on the whole BLM movement or on Democrats, you overstate their, your case, you lose credibility, and you're being prejudicial. If you think back, uh, you probably read some things about how non-Christians have criticized Christians over the, 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 the ages. Maybe it was the Crusades, maybe it was uh, tacit support of slavery in the 1800s. Uh, maybe it was uh, that all Christians hate all homosexuals. And when you heard those things, you bristled at the broad overgeneralization. 
we should not do the same. Speaking of the phrase Black Lives Matter, for which no Christian should disagree, it has been used by Satan to foster confusion. The movement, yes, has been largely hijacked by anarchists and Marxists. However, many within the Black Lives Matter movement are genuinely seeking positive reform and biblical justice. Likewise, we cannot reasonably claim and certainly can't prove that all Democrats are seeking anarchy. Yeah, I wonder why sometimes they don't quickly denounce those things, but that does not give me the liberty to assume the worst of all of them. It's important to be, in, to be careful with our words and not generalize or jump to conclusions or express prejudice about people and events. Always allow the process to determine the truth after all sides are heard. That's called due process. That's called, in the Bible, impartiality. In general, the church and individual Christians should speak to issues in light of biblical command and principles without reference to a political party. If a Christian feels called into partisan activities or politics, always best to start with a biblical command or principle in order to put down your anchor. Why am I doing this? Have a biblical reason for getting involved. Then always speak from biblical conviction with love. That's what God can bless, even in politics. If a party or a candidate is closer to a biblical position, it's appropriate to point it out. But do not get into the position of defending a party or a candidate on all fronts. They all have clay feet, one way or another. If you're dealing with moral issues that may not be clear, it's important to listen to the arguments, weigh them in the balance of Scripture. It's vital that we use objective truth, not opinion, as our reference point. When when appropriate, Christians should speak about moral issues from a biblical perspective. We should always keep in mind it is more important to point others to Christ than it is to win a political argument or defend a candidate. While we engage, we've got to remember and communicate that politics are not the main issue on this earth. Knowing the Savior and eternal life, being reconciled with and glorifying Him in all we believe and say and do, those are the infinitely more important goals. That's what the church needs to constantly be calling others to. Okay, personal opinions now. As I have Try to apply this to the upcoming election. I'm expressing just my own views, my own opinions, not those of the other elders, the deacons, or any official lion and lamb statement, okay? Uh, We're, of course, not telling, I'm not telling anybody how to vote. I wouldn't know who you vote for, even if you did vote, okay? But I hope that you will be informed from a biblical worldview as I believe that is what is best for all. You've got to make up your own mind about which candidates offer the best possibility for achieving that goal. Now, politics is made up of people. Therefore, they're not perfect, none of them. The most effective, eloquent, and pleasant president in my lifetime who happened to be friendly to biblical principle was a guy named Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. However, Reagan made some pretty significant mistakes and disappointed in several ways, especially in his nominations to the United States Supreme Court. Point is, you will never be completely happy with any leader. They all have their blind spots. I want to first address one option I hope you will not take. That is, sitting out the election. This has been the approach of many. It is estimated that more than two-thirds of eligible evangelical voters did not vote in 2016. This is even more popular among younger evangelicals who oppose abortion, oppose same-sex marriages, and do not appreciate the decline of religious liberty we saw under the Obama administration. However, they are so put off by the life and the personality of Donald Trump, they decided to take a pass. And 
You know, when one considers the negatives of Donald Trump, they form a pretty significant pile. An honest Trump supporter has to admit he carries a lot of baggage. Nobody ever looked at him as a role model for Christians. He came from a lifestyle foreign to us of wealth and power and brashness, pretty much getting what he wanted. Because of his wealth and power, he attracted a lot of people with questionable character who wanted a piece of the action. Now, we don't objectively know the history of his moral character in relation to women, other than he had three wives, as I counted. But his own words, if not pure braggadocia, would convict him. He became a sort of an icon for the hardball business world. Apparently, that involves hiring and trying people out for his, his benefit and firing them quickly if it didn't work out to his liking. Uh, one could claim that he has uh, not a very good uh, sense of the character of people as he has fired many of the people he chose to serve in his administration. Humility, meekness, and gentleness are not words that come to mind when we refer to Donald Trump. His brashness and vindictiveness are not becoming. He often shoots himself in the foot with his mouth by reacting to every criticism thrown his way. He's created enemies with many who would have supported him but for his personal public attacks as they went out the door. It makes him look thin-skinned and reactionary. He is clearly given to exaggeration. Now, I don't know his heart, but my opinion is that he appears to be what I would call transactional. That he, he takes pride in being able to make a deal in the business world. He's very good at it, and he's used that in politics and in world affairs very successfully. Now, this is not an evil, but it's not the same thing as operating from personal conviction or principle if I've correctly assessed him. In 2016, there were about 15 candidates running for the Republican nomination. I had my favorite, and it was not Donald Trump. In fact, I said at that time, he is my last choice. I'd take him over the alternative, but he's my last. Yet, God allowed the least likely, most indelicate, least experienced in government candidate, not only to be nominated, but to ascend to be the leader of the free world. So much for my opinion. And that's the big point here. Romans 13.1 tells us that there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. There's a subtle distinction here. You know, pain, suffering, tragedy, all that sort of thing are allowed by God for his purposes. But God puts President Obama, God put President Trump into office for his purposes. Now, when we consider what President Trump and his administration have done in terms of actions and policies, they form a pretty impressive pile as well. And these positive actions by Trump and his administration include policies that are much more favorable to religious liberty, the sanctity of life, personal responsibility, and limited government, all of which are biblical principles. Matt Staver for the Liberty Council, which, which uh, protects religious liberty, said this, quote, In the first two years of his administration, Trump achieved more than all the presidents combined since Ronald Reagan. He's been more pro-religious freedom and pro-life president than any other president in modern history. Another issue. The world racist is often, often finds its way into a description of our president. Let me ask, does a racist person give minorities higher employment rates than they've ever had by his policies, as Trump did? Does a racist provide better educational choices, choices for minorities as his policies have done? I'll just ask, anybody out there, if you're here today or if you're listening, if you know of any real evidence other than his often poorly chosen words, any evidence of actual racism, would you please come and tell me? I'll be happy to look at it. On another front, President Clinton, if I understand correctly, decided to move the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem 
from Tel Aviv to, in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. But he didn't do it. Neither did President W. Bush or President Obama. But the irreligious Trump did. After Israel became a nation in 1948, largely because of the efforts of Democratic President Truman, the first nation to recognize Israel's statehood was Egypt, but not until 1979. And it wasn't until 1995, as I understand, that another nation recognized Israel's statehood. And now it's been 25 years, and nobody's recognized Israel's statehood, except for Trump's efforts to gain two more countries in the Middle East and change the whole dynamics of that region. Trump has been the first to stand up to China's attempts to dominate the world economy through the theft of our technology and expansionist policies, ditto for Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, and other dictatorships. All this while bringing troops home, which is something that liberals ought to be applauding. So let's first recognize that none of us know what's going on in the heart of any candidate, whether it's ego, prejudice, ambition, or genuine convictions. Likewise, we should not judge whether a candidate is saved or not. That's not our call. We did study in 1 John. We learned that one spiritual condition will become evident. Starting in chapter 3, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he, is, he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. However, what do you do with people who are not in your presence, you don't know personally, and you cannot see what they do in private, and certainly do not know the heart of that person, like the candidates for president. I suggest that the best that we can do is to look at the philosophy of those supporting the candidate and look at what they do. In other words, actions speak louder than words. No, the president does not have a pleasant personality. His words and tweets are, I think, clearly misguided, argumentative, and in my opinion, often stupid. His past infidelity was sin. But can you remember anybody in the Bible who had some failings? Perhaps Abraham the liar, who put his own wife at risk with rulers. Moses the murderer. Rahab the harlot. David the murderer and the adulterer, Paul who oversaw the murder and persecution of the early church. Yet God used all of them. And I would never compare Trump to these people. But do you think it impossible for God to use any president, any person for his purposes? Let's deal with reality. And this is something that is lost on some people. In our system, we have a binary choice. Yeah, I understand there's supposed to be a libertarian candidate on the ballot for president, and you might even agree with some of their libertarian views. Uh, I don't think a Christian in good conscience, a biblical Christian in good conscience can vote for anybody who believes in killing unborn children simply because they don't like the president's personality. And if this election is about personality, the president is toast, okay? If, it's, if you're more concerned about governing with policies that take us in the direction of biblical standards and principles, you really need to think if you're hesitant. Wayne Gruden, a uh, theologian, put it like this, quote, we are called by God as Christians to be exiles on this earth and simultaneously to seek the welfare of the city or in our case, the country, where God has called us to live as exiles. He's quoting from Jeremiah, where, who's writing to the Jews who are captive exiles in Babylon, and he tells them to seek the welfare of their city. Now, if the Jews are supposed to seek the welfare of their captives, are we held to a different standard somehow? Can we just kind of avoid the the dissonance by not voting 
Some may say that I'm compromising my convictions, but I try to look at what will bring us closest or closer to God's best. What will bring about the welfare of my city, state, and country? Lawyers tend to look at things in terms of worst-case scenario. What do we do if worst-case happens? If I assume the worst about Trump, and it is an assumption, would be, he has no personal convictions, he's just trying to win by appealing to one side of the political landscape, he's just transactional. However, the alternative is somebody I know is opposed to what I believe are biblical commands and principles, or I can just not vote, given the choices. I am called to vote for what I believe would bring us closest to God's best. Some would say that voting for a candidate as a lesser of two evils is wrong for Christians. And they might ask, what would it take to throw out a distasteful candidate in a two-person race and simply not vote? Again, Gruden said it well. He's basically, he, to paraphrase, he said, when my candidate stops acting and supporting things that I believe line up with biblical commands like the sanctity of life, biblical marriage, religious liberty, orderly society, in other words, when the two evils are essentially equal, then I don't vote for either. Okay, those are just my thoughts. You do as you feel called by God. We want to end on something that's even more important than all of this. It's to have a biblical sense of proportion when we think about things like politics and eternity. At the end of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul goes into a, a passage on widows and the unmarried. I'm going to read from there starting at verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as if they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away, and I want you to be free from anxieties. I think we can draw a principle and another application, just as Paul has gone beyond the issue of widows and the unmarried. It's clear from the context that Paul is not saying that these things are somehow unimportant. Marriage, grief, joy, possessions, poverty, making a living, all of that is a part of our lives and must be tended to. We are to do our best to deal with these issues of life, getting as close as we can to his way, his will, and his word. At the same time, we have to understand that these are all temporal of this world, not eternity, nor do they determine eternity for anyone. As Mike taught last Sunday, Sunday, this world is a vapor compared to the glory awaiting us in eternity. So therefore, we should vote as if we're not voting. In other words, do your homework, do it wisely in order to bring about what is best in God's sight. However, do not be consumed with the political process. Do not insult God by, God by thinking or saying the world will end if so-and-so is elected. Please, we do not live for politics. Engage, but do not fear the outcome. I'm actually old enough to remember presidents all the way back to Eisenhower who left office after I started grade school. Then it was Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush one, Clinton, Bush two, and then Obama. Each one with a different take, a different approach, with more or less success. I don't know if you've heard this, but the last several election cycles I've heard people say, this is the most important election. And maybe that's true. Maybe the elections keep getting more and more important in terms of consequences. But through all of those administrations, all the ups and downs, last time I checked, God is still on the throne. He's still in control. He is still sovereign. God put you and I here for a reason. So do not sit on the sidelines, but be salt and light. Be involved, 
by all means, support the candidates that will bring us closer to God's best as revealed in his word. In that process, spreading the gospel is much more important than the outcome of any election. Remember, if your candidate does not win, God has a purpose for it. Romans 8 tells us that all things work together for good, for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. Note that Paul did not say all things are good. Not all events, organizations, movements, candidates, or rulers are good. However, he works them together for the eternal good, the salvation of God's people. Paul notes that among the things that cannot separate us from the love of God are rulers. Praise God for that. No matter what happens, we will never be separated. It may be that God knows we need rulers who will persecute us and bring policies that we know are destructive, perhaps even uh, an economic collapse that will drive the lost and us back to him. I hope not, but not my will, but his. As the worship team comes up, uh, let me just say one last thing here. Paul and John both tell us that the world is passing away. The system we are in is disappearing. Please understand that our primary citizenship is not here in this vapor we call life. It's an eternity with him. Lord God, give us a proper sense of proportion. Help us to understand what is really important. As we are here in this life, May we do everything for your glory. May we bring our culture closer to you. May we listen to others with whom we think we disagree and consider maybe they have a point on something. May we be unified as a church, Lord, so that we can speak with one voice to the lost world around us. Lord, this is our prayer. We, we plead with you. Do not allow us to be divided whether by generation or by skin color or any other division, Lord. We are one as your body. We are your bride. We want to be one with each other and with you. Thank you, Father, that you've given us your word to unify us. We ask these, all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.